Thank you very much, Lizzie. It has been pointed out to me in trying to come up with an interesting title for this talk that I didn't consider the running headings of any possible publication, which would have on one page Michal Hoyne, the top of the next page, queer and grotesque. Uh, Michal Hoyne, <laughs> queer and grotesque. What I'm going to try and talk about today is what the orthography or the various types of orthography in 23 and 10 are, how do we describe them, and particularly when talking about the uh, obscure and pseudo-archaic style, why we have it in 23 and 10, and indeed, uh, inevitably, in related manuscripts as well. So there's a handout with this which should hopefully help you to uh, follow what I'll be talking about. Before speaking about the orthography of 23 and 10 in particular, it may be useful to provide a brief and simplified, very simplified overview of the main phases of the history of Irish spelling before 1575. Measured against modern Irish, the orthography of Old Irish has a number of peculiarities. Medial and final B, D and G are generally spelt with the graphs for P, T and C. Lenition is only consistently marked on F, S, P, T and C. Nasalization is not indicated on C, P, T or F. We notice more variety in the use of vowel graphs, particularly in unstressed position. Today, we spell the word Kele with final E in every case, but in a contemporary Old Irish manuscript, we will find I in the genitive and IU in the dative. This variation is more than simply graphic, but when Irish loses clear short vowel sounds in unstressed position, these graphs become more or less interchangeable. Now, if we fast forward to the end of the 16th century, let's say 1575, we find a spelling system which is in some respects more phonetic. Medial and final B, D and G are represented by the graphs B, D and G. Lenition is regularly indicated on almost all consonants, as in modern Irish. The variation in unstressed vowels is greatly reduced, and we have more or less reached a stage where, for example, a schwa after a palatal consonant is always E, after a broad consonant A. Broadly speaking, this is the system for writing Irish that eventually triumphed in the Gaelic revival. It is not entirely phonetic. Many of the gaps between spelling and pronunciation in the 1950s that were felt to justify the spelling reforms, so-called, of the Caedon uh, Ifiguil have their roots in the early modern Irish period. But broadly speaking, we can say that this system more clearly and consistently captured pronunciation than did the earlier spelling practices. This late 16th, early 17th century usage is what we generally designate as early modern Irish orthography. We must go to the end of the 16th century to find this regular semi-phonetic system, but of course linguistically early modern Irish is said to begin in the 13th century. Obviously the various spelling practices of the intervening three centuries are also by definition early modern, but prior to the 16th century the spelling practices of manuscripts are often closer, in some respects anyway, to those of the early Irish period. In the 14th century poem book of the McGowans of Cavan, for example, we find medial and final voiced plosives often written using the graphs proper to their unvoiced counterparts, and nasalization not marked on C, P, T, and F. This is early modern Irish orthography, but scholars of Irish using the term early modern Irish orthography do not have this intermediate stage between early Irish conventions and more progressive practices in mind when we use the term. That we have come to associate the orthography of the end of the early modern Irish period with the whole span from the 13th century down to the 17th is a result of the fact that early modern Irish literature is mediated to us, in the most part, in scholarly publications. The prose of the 17th century writer Geoffrey Keating was, and remains, most people's first encounter with early modern Irish. And these early experiences shape our expectations of what early modern Irish looks like. 
In editing texts from manuscripts, especially when preparing critical editions, it is common practice to normalize orthography. Eleanor Knott, the first woman elected to membership of the Academy, her portrait is outside, was a pioneer in this respect. Her edition of the poems of Taigdaolo Higin, published 1922, established once for all a normalized orthography for editing early modern Irish syllabic poetry. Knott followed the usage of late 16th, early 17th century manuscripts, and in the case of a 16th century poet like Taigdaol, this involves no anachronism, and the spelling system in question has much to recommend it. But the process of normalization refined by Knott became that used by pretty much every editor, even when editing earlier verse from a contemporary earlier manuscript. The late Anders Alquist, in his survey of Irish orthography, was careful to refer to developments in the early modern Irish period, rather than to generalize about early modern Irish orthography. And his is an example we should all follow. 23 and 10 is indisputably an early modern production, but it contains texts that span old, middle, and early modern Irish. At one end, there are texts that can safely be dated to the old Irish period. On the other end, probably the youngest text in the manuscript is The Harrowing of Hell, which may be no more than 200 years older than the manuscript itself. That's number three on your handout. In copying texts, early modern Irish scribes did not have our reverence for accurate transcription. Not until the Louvain project of the 16th century, 17th century I should say, do we find scribes punctiliously following their exemplars in every detail. Whether consciously or unconsciously, scribes made cosmetic changes to the text before them, and in some cases their interventions are much more wide-ranging. These scribes rightly deserve our respect and admiration as custodians of Ireland's medieval literature and as our predecessors in its study, but they existed in a very different intellectual world and we must be careful not to ascribe modern scholarly notions to them or to confuse their intentions with ours. They had no concept of the periodization of the Irish language, the division of Irish on linguistic grounds into old, middle, and modern. That is a product of 19th century historical philology, and those boundaries between periods were a matter of uncertainty well into the 20th century. When Michael O'Clara, who we've mentioned a few times today, in the preface to his Dictionary of Obscure Glossary Words, published in 1643 as a printed book, wrote of Shen Ryelg, he meant Old Irish, with a lowercase o. For early modern Irish scholars of the Irish language, it was an unbroken continuum. They were aware some texts were more ancient or more obscure than others, but they did not draw dividing lines between periods or see any inconsistency in employing a mix of spelling conventions. We must also remember that in compiling a book like 23 and 10, these scribes transcribe texts for their own purposes, something Kevin Murray mentioned earlier. A manuscript like 23 and 10 was not a sacred repository of ancient learning to the men who produced it. We are not dealing with learning for learning's sake, but with the raw material of a transaction between men of learning and the aristocrats who financed them and ensured their status. A book like this was part of their stock in trade. To repurpose a phrase of the late great Donoghue Crowns, it was a source book from which they could meet the needs of their patrons. The old literature there might be reworked into a new early modern Irish version. It might form the basis of an apologue or an allusion in a bardic poem. It might be an occasion for a performance of learning in the presence of a paymaster. I would like to emphasize that though the scribes of our early modern manuscripts existed in a very different intellectual world, they were far from ignorant about orthographical variation and even about change in orthographical practices over time. 
I have written recently about how the bardic grammatical tracts of the early 16th century grappled with the metrical implications of a change in spelling in words like three, foot, earlier trach. The pronunciation had already changed in the Middle Irish period, but well into the 15th century, the older spelling continued to be used. And when this was finally changed, it had major implications for bardic poetry, which, contrary to popular belief, was very much a visual medium in which orthography played a major role. Somewhat later, number six on your handout, Michael O'Claire, gave advice to young students about the spellings likely to throw them in old books. He notes that older manuscripts often ignore glide vowels, lenition, and length marks, that C and T are often written for G and D, respectively, that the graphs used for some vowels have changed, that there is variation in the vowel graphs used in unstressed position. Now, Michael O'Claire was an extraordinary man, but it is safe to say that the average early modern Irish scholar of Shanachas or law will also have read more old and middle Irish in manuscript than any of us today and would have been at home with these orthographical vagaries. However handicapped he may have been for want of a choice or a tournizen, we would be wise not to underestimate him, especially since some scholars of this period had likely seen manuscripts in Irish older than any that have come down to us on Irish soil. In the same century as our semi-phonetic spelling system achieved something like regularity, we find in a clutch of manuscripts of historical lore and law an orthographical system that looks the other way, drawing on earlier non-phonetic spelling conventions and pushing them to new extremes, but which also had an admixture of some more novel spellings, such as the use of V uh, to indicate the knighted B, something borrowed, I think most likely from English, but possibly from Latin. This pseudo-archaic obscurantist spelling system is the subject of an excellent paper by Liam Bernach in the Festschrift for Cahlo Heindle, number seven, on which I am building today. Now, these spelling systems have provoked some harsh words, and Ruri gave us a taster yesterday. Describing a text in a book of the O'Daveron Law family written around 1564, Standish Hayes O'Grady fumed. It is written in an obscure style and further disfigured by the uncouth spelling which some scribes in this and the preceding century seem to have found a pleasure in adopting, without any object apparently, but that of puzzling readers. O'Grady again refers to Harley 5280, an O'Clary book produced in the first half of the 16th century, and its cacography. Look it up. Um, Torneisen used the word queer to describe the spelling of the same manuscript. Or I Best in 1954 was moved to label as grotesque the spelling of part of our manuscript. One can only admire the restraint of Nessany Hay describing the orthography of G7 and referring simply to eccentricities. One aspect of this eccentric spelling system is a tendency towards hypervocalism. That is, the writing of multiple vowel graphs where, in the ordinary run of things, one would do. A classic example of that style is the colophon in our manuscript by A, dated the Saturday before St. Patrick's Day, 1575. That's 9A on your handout. I must admit that I struggle to make sense of part of it, and it seems to me there are at least two significant errors. In any event, the consonants pose no real problem here. V is used for a nice B. We also find slightly older spellings like ND for NN and LD for LL, but nothing too remarkable there. It is undoubtedly the piling up of vowels that is the most remarkable feature. There is a pattern here. The scribe is not simply inserting vowels at random. UO, for example, is fairly consistently used for O, AU or AOU for A, EI for E. So in the genitive phrase, 
in Chaon, a hiatus word in, in modern hour, Chaon, modern hour Chaon, uh, A substitutes EI for E, leaves one of the two A's as is, substitutes AU for the second A, and leaves the final I as is. The E is retained, but with a purely orthographical H, a feature of older manuscripts, but again, not unusual in this period. In Vuil, the A stays as it is, as does the I, but the O becomes OU. In Chonera, the O is replaced with OU, the A with AUO, the I with IE, and the final E is spelled EI. So really all out in the word Chonera. There is nothing phonetic about this. This is rather like the ciphers of which scribes of this period were also fond. We are simply slotting in relatively stable alternative values of A, O, U, and so on. It is a purely graphic exercise. It is also rather inconsistent. In spelling what would normally be long A, I, on one occasion, A changes the I, changes the A, I beg your pardon, leaving the I. On another occasion, he changes the A, and uh, uh, he leaves the A and changes the I. Some words escape any change, besides the spelling. The language is somewhat pseudo-archaic. For example, ria is used for the preposition re and fri for le. Light pseudo-archaisms, but pseudo-archaisms nonetheless. The words aram, manad, and rish do not occur in colloquial early modern Irish prose. Similarly, in another scribal note by A, this time without any multiplication of vowels, we find another rare word in early modern Irish, alt or alt, uh, uh, house. A different colophon by A exemplifies some other features of the obscure and pseudo-archaic orthographical system employed by the scribes. This is 9b. The word erchoidach had become urchoidach by this period. The spelling of the first syllable and the emission of the glide vowel are deliberate pseudo-archaisms. The word dove, ink, is spelt with a lighted p. This is an example of how earlier spelling conventions were extended in this period. If intervocalic and final P could represent B, then nonited P should logically, after a fashion, uh, also represent nonited B in these positions. And this use of nonited P for nonited B is very common indeed, even in the linguistically young portions of 23 and 10 and other manuscripts. Though A has left us more scribal colophons and notes, he is not the sole offender when it comes to pseudo-archaism in the marginalia and colophons. Duffach, though not inclined to pile up extraneous vowels like A, does use some older-looking spellings by rendering A's name with the earlier digraph OE, this is 9C, not unheard of in early modern Irish, but unusual by this period. His spellings of Laur and Ordach are noteworthy, as is the slightly more archaic form of the preposition Eir after. Unusually, in my experience anyway, Duffach uses the Arabic numerals to represent the ordinal prefix Kead, uh, first, as opposed to the usual dot c dot from Latin uh, centum. In discussing the more bizarre orthography of 23 and 10, I have chosen to focus first on the spelling of scribal notes to make the point that these writing practices are being employed in real time by our scribes in the year 1575. While we do have evidence that some of the older texts in this sort of orthography were already represented in this fashion in the exemplar of 23 and 10, we must also consider that our scribes were actively modifying the orthography of older texts as they copied. Just as we saw some variation in the spelling practices of the scribes when writing marginal notes and colophons, the texts in 23 and 10 that have undergone the process of orthographical revision show different levels of intervention. 
the legal text on stolen horses, edited by Kuno Meyer and discussed by Liam yesterday. So far as I am able to make out, uh, besides the ubiquitous V for an united B, the only alterations made to spelling here are in the vowels. So we find Grage uh, spelt with the kind of substitutions we saw A making in his 1575 colophon. And indeed, A is the scribe of this portion of the manuscript. And so far as I know, we have no other copy with which to compare it. This is a relatively short text, but it is striking, as Liam observed yesterday, that the piling up of vowels is most conspicuous in the first few lines, and after that becomes only sporadic. This may be due to the difficulty of the following passage, as Liam suggested, but my colleague Christina Cleary draws my attention to a short Middle Irish text in H422, also marred by this hypervocalic style, but not nearly as difficult linguistically. The scribe uses a somewhat different system uh, in inserting extraneous vowels. But here, too, the hypervocalic style quickly fades out after only four lines as printed in Bergen's edition, as if the scribe was fed up of what must have been the tedious and time-consuming task of adding extraneous vowels. The famous Middle Irish text, Uith Bene Herder, uh, which has been referred to a few times already, gives us a much more varied style of archaizing and obscuring orthography. In vowels, we find the hypervocalic spellings with which we are by now all too familiar. We find a in the diphthong ia and a, his, her, it's there, being replaced with e and with o. The replacement with o is simple enough. An unstressed vowel after a non-palatal consonant might be written a or o in this period. So where you would regularly have an unclear a, why not write o? Similarly, uh, de, de was often spelt with an e. This was known in early modern Irish from the likes of Cormac's glossary. This sets up variation between the graphs A and E, not just in the disyllable, uh, which would have become monosyllabic by this period, uh, but in the monophthong as well. And of course, AE variation was familiar too from pairs like Kech, later Gach, and Ken, Gan, which would have been in no way exotic even in an early modern Irish text. We saw early, earlier that Michael O'Clara was not only familiar with the idea that E could be written for A, but he says that all the learned are. Incidentally, for the possessive pronoun a, his, hers, etc., in these manuscripts, we also find i written. The preposition i, in or into, can be written a. So, on that principle, the possessive pronoun a can be written i. Uh, um, turning to consonants, the older system of representing voice stops has been extended because t could represent a medial and final single d in the older orthography. It can logically represents the D in the older spelling of Fion. So we have NT for ND. P and C are now used to represent initial B and G as well, just as they were used to represent these sounds in medial and final position. A name like Gráinne, which begins with the letter G, is spelt with initial C. A word like Brook, uh, uh, Badger, is spelt with initial P. In the case of CG alternation in initial position, this would also have been encouraged by spellings of unstressed words like go, the prepositions and the conjunction, gan and gach, with initial C, which again were perfectly common even in early modern manuscripts. This variation of the spelling of stops extends too to the corresponding lenited letters. The lenited G of truige becomes C, at least in spelling, but by reversing this process, the lenited C of schechter uh, becomes a lenited G in writing. That last example is fairly isolated, but it shows that the direction of travel in these spelling extensions is not all in one direction. 
There are also more sophisticated attempts to make the text appear more ancient. Perhaps most strikingly, the nasalization of prepositional pronouns, a favorite topic in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. In Old Irish, the initial of a prepositional pronoun could be nasalized in any environment where we might expect an adjective would be uh, nasalized. For example, after an accusative uh, singular noun. This is a genuine Old Irish feature described by Tournaisen and ZCP5, but it dies out by Middle Irish. Our scribes, and this is a characteristic of other manuscripts with pseudo-archaic spellings, either did not understand that the nasalization was dependent on the prepositional pronoun occurring in particular environments, or they didn't care, and seized on it as an old-looking spelling, so that we frequently find nasalized prepositional pronouns that could not be original. This is a pseudo-archaic feature, and certainly not, uh, as proposed by uh, Tommaso Concanon at the end of page 5, a real feature of 16th century Connacht Irish. If Uwet Bene Heather is covered in a thick layer of obscure pseudo-archaizing spelling, some texts in 23 and 10 have only a light covering. For example, the short text edited by Meyer as Abenteuer Königs Eid Ordnede shows only a few isolated examples. We have a nasalized prepositional pronoun no, which cannot be original, some hypervocalisms, and in the likes of Tria Vithu, uh, we see the pseudo-archaic substitution of IE for IA and an initial B, lenited here, being represented by P. But we also find the use of obscure, barely navilith type vocabulary. In the first line, we encounter Ben Neil Rasich, which must mean the son of Neil Frasach. Ben here can only be the Hebrew word for son, not the Irish word for wife. We know Neil Frasach is his father, and not married to his son. Uh, uh, this is a feature of other texts in manuscripts like ours. In editing the Harleian copy of Skiel Bale Vin Verlich, uh, Meyer compared it to the copy in H318 and noted that Latin, Hebrew, and obscure Irish words were substituted for common items of vocabulary. And there we have Latin philia and Hebrew ben side by side, where on this occasion the copy in 23 and 10 has bog standard Indian, Inin, and Mac. Liam Burdock's study, to which I have already referred, rightly emphasizes the complexity of this process of pseudo-archaization. To return to Uath Ben when we compare the copy in our manuscript to that in Harley, we find very similar spellings. Some so similar that we can posit a common ancestor in which the spelling had already been altered. But there are also so many differences that we are reminded of the dynamic and creative nature of this orthographical manipulation. It is not necessarily done once for all or in the same manner in different manuscripts. I have already mentioned that there is variation even within a given manuscript in the spelling of different texts. And in a given text, we may find, for example, initial G written as C in one line and as G in the very next line. It is also worth noting that not all texts in a given manuscript are subjected to orthographical recasting. In 23 and 10, there, I found very, very few spellings in any verse texts. One text may be found in this strange spelling in manuscript A, but have escaped it in the closely related manuscript B. A closer analysis of shared texts across different manuscripts with minute attention to the proclivities of individual scribes and groups of scribes may help us to recover something of the reasons why the cookie has crumbled as it has, but some of the relevant information may be unrecoverable. 
The question as to the origins of these spelling practices also involves a certain amount of speculation. In looking at some sample texts from our manuscript, I have tried to show that there is a certain logic behind this strange-looking system, particularly with regards to the consonants. The piling up of vowels is more difficult to explain. There is clearly a system, or a number of systems, involved in the manuscripts that employ this type of spelling, but it is rather opaque. Liam Bernach points out that owing to phonological developments over time, sometimes represented in spelling, it could have appeared to early modern scribes that the earlier language had more vowels, or at least more vowel graphs. The early modern Irish word cur, champion, for example, was earlier cower. But we should also note that early modern Irish could quite naturally produce impressive combinations of vowel graphs without recourse to early Irish. I've given you an example on the handout. And cower cur highlights the problem of relating the hypervocalic values to actual sounds and the usual letters that designate them. Why does AU stand for A? when short AU tends to become U in early modern Irish. In origin, the vowel system seems, at least on the surface, more arbitrary than the experimentation with constant spellings. Occasionally, this hypervocalic style had a clear practical function. For example, we sometimes find words extended in this fashion as a line filler at the end of a text in manuscripts, uh, number 14. But the spread of this custom, if it began there, outside of that environment, and the establishment of set values remains, at least to me, mysterious. We can explain on the basis of early modern spelling practices, internal synchronically to early modern Irish, how C might be written for initial G without ever having to seriously consider whether our scribes might have known a contemporary Old Irish or early Old Irish manuscript in which a spelling like the famous uh, Bagaller with C of Combray occurred. Some spellings, however, do suggest an indebtedness to early manuscripts. The nasalization of prepositional pronouns, for instance, provides a hint that those behind this orthography were familiar either with old Irish manuscripts or manuscripts that had faithfully copied this feature. The use of to as a preverb may also suggest a familiarity with early old Irish manuscripts. The use of T for initial D, while not unheard of in the likes of 23 and 10, is relatively unusual. We might also imagine that the T here could be a quasi-etymological spelling based on prototonic forms with initial T. But there is nothing improbable in the suggestion that there were earlier books on which scribes like the men who produced 23 and 10 could have drawn inspiration. It is important to emphasize, though, that however our scribes came across it, this is a pseudo-archaic feature in our manuscripts. We find forms of the verb dugni, where the preverb goes back to an earlier de, not to an earlier to, written with to. Such forms are not archaic Irish, any more than the Palace of Westminster is genuine late Gothic architecture. Perhaps inevitably, the texts of 23 and 10 and related manuscripts have proved a happy hunting ground for those eager to expand the corpus of archaic and very early Old Irish. But we should bear in mind that we are dealing with late copies made by scribes inclined to pseudo-archaeis who may have been familiar with genuine early Old Irish manuscripts. The probability that the features that distinguish early Old Irish from the language of the glosses could survive even one or two stages of later copying is low. But even if we imagine a genuine old spelling surviving, it will always be suspect in this context. To illustrate the weakness of orthography as evidence for a very early date of an old Irish text, I would like to look briefly at Audech Morin, which on the basis of orthography, and especially the orthography of our manuscript, has been dated to around 700 or earlier. 
I'll tackle or at least raise doubts about seven points, all seven points, advanced to support an early date on the basis of orthography as listed in Kelly's edition. And I will throw in two more for free. Firstly, a final united D is often written TH. Now, this could be really old. But we have seen that final D can be written T, and a natural extension of the system is to write final united D as TH. In addition, this practice may have been encouraged by a sort of quasi-etymological spelling. One of the subjects on the curriculum of Filiacht, basic grammar and metrics, which all praise poets, historians, and lawyers of this period would undergo, was the form assumed by consonants that syncopate. And this education specifically drew attention to the interchange of the nice D and T in words like Turrud. Secondly, the preverb to is taken to support an early dating. But the hyper-correct use of to and its presence in definitely middle Irish texts should make us very skeptical indeed. Are these examples real? Are they statistically relevant? How do they compare to usage in definitely uh, later or linguistically younger texts? Rather? The preverb de de is also written for do, but the same interchange is found in the preposition do, which suggests only that de and de were simply variant spellings of do. Thirdly, the spellings o and oa for ua have been taken to be archaic, but as pointed out by Johann Korthels, these are definitely found in texts that are certainly Middle Irish, another pseudo-archaism, drawing perhaps on archaic spelling conventions, but not actually diagnostic of an early date in this context. Fourthly, final ch is sometimes spelt with an united g, a genuine old spelling or simply an extension of the fluctuation between the letters for stops and their united counterparts, something we've met already, and precisely the sort of interchange encouraged by quasi-etymological considerations. Fifthly, the use of mar for more. Now, the two forms are found not only in archaic sources, but as late as the 9th century Milan glosses, but in any event, the presence of mar is not even diagnostic of a solid old Irish date in a manuscript like this. In G7, another manuscript with our weird spelling, we meet the famous morihan. Now, the first syllable of that word is originally short, but in Middle Irish, perhaps encouraged by folk etymology, the first syllable becomes Morigan, great queen, instead of something like nightmarish queen. And in G7, we find Marigan, a simple pseudo-archaic substitution of Mar for more, but one which proves a late date rather than an early one. How do we test the examples in Eldach Moran? Six, unstressed E in unfixed pronouns, of which we heard something earlier, uh, in the second syllable of Oag, and in the unstressed syllables of Tugad and Sa'ev. Again, these may all be genuinely old spellings. But we've already seen that the likes of Michael O'Clara understood that E could be substituted for A in certain words at least, and this seems to be fairly widespread in our manuscripts. We might also ask why our manuscript is so sloppy in unstressed vowels, or short unstressed vowels in Auslaut, but has preserved these unstressed gems for us. Might it be that this was a very marked archaic or pseudo-archaic feature, whereas final vowels were not understood in the same way. Seven, the absence of glide vowels. Again, Michal O'Clara alerts us to the fact that early modern literati were aware that this was an old feature and we caught A doing something similar with eye glides in a colophon. In sum, none of the seven orthographical features introduced in the edition of Audax Moran to justify a date earlier than the Wurzburg glosses and the primacy of recension B over recension A are completely above suspicion in a 16th century manuscript with a marked and sophisticated pseudo-archaizing tendency. If we found these in a 12th century manuscript with no pseudo-archaic bent, we would not be so suspicious. It is possible, 
I personally think improbable, but possible, that these are real archaic spellings going back to an old archetype. But we cannot be sure, and we may have to live with that uncertainty. Now for the two freebies. One archaic feature that is not found in Audach Moran is A for the later diphthong Ia in words like Grian. But even if we had it here, we could be sceptical. Such spellings might have been encountered in earlier manuscripts and imitated, and they would have been encouraged by etymological considerations in words like Grian, date of Gzain. Incidentally, in the course of their education, young students of language in the 16th century probably would have been taught that the change of Ia, the interchange of Ia and A, was an example of irregular palatalization an idea which might have encouraged quasi-etymological spellings, and the uh, variation in words like Rhea and Ray is perfectly common in this period. Another orthographical feature frequently adduced in favor of an archaic date is the doubling of a vowel graph to indicate a single long vowel. This is number 19 on your handout. This is sometimes found even in Middle Irish manuscripts, but in any event, in 23 and 10, we may see the traces of a pseudo-archaizing hand in this feature. Johann Kortels and Chantal Kobel have noted one possible example in the rhetoric of Adat Chonchover, preserved in our manuscript and edited uh, in exemplary fashion by both scholars, uh, uh, noted one possible example of the doubling of a vowel to indicate not a long vowel, but a vowel of middle length. Now, a length mark is sometimes used even in old Irish manuscripts to indicate middle quantity rather than simply a long vowel. But we have good reasons to believe that in old Irish, middle quantity was in the syllable rather than in the vowel. Syllables and not vowels were of middle length. Later, in some dialects of Irish at any event, the vowel in these middle length syllables becomes a, a, a monophthong or diphthong. The use of a length mark in Old Irish manuscripts should probably best be understood as a device for marking not that a vowel was long or of middle length, but that a syllable was long or of middle length. And that also helps explain why they're so often wide of the mark. Uh, uh, very often the length mark is over a consonant nearby rather than the vowel itself. The doubling of a vowel graph in Old Irish, on the other hand, is, so far as I know, only ever used to indicate a genuine long vowel. In other words, B-E-I-N, for ben, B-I-N-N, looks like a cross-contamination of two orthographical practices in the interest of pseudo-archaizing, and it suggests a more modern underlying phonology in which middle length is in the vowel and not in the syllable. Tournaisen, who first edited Audacht Morn in 1917, initially refused to allow spellings like egg and toh for do and so on to sway his dating, holding the evidence of 23 and 10 with its pseudo-archaizing bent to be unreliable and too isolated in the manuscript tradition. But he was persuaded by Picorni that he was wrong to do so. And though Kim McCone has cleared the decks with useful remarks in Progress in Medieval Irish Studies, the resultant consensus that recension B is older than recension A and the text itself as old as the 7th century has not been seriously challenged in print to my knowledge, but maybe it should be. Or put more positively, perhaps the existing dating hypothesis should be restated and defended in the light of a more nuanced understanding of the possibilities of pseudo-archaization in these and related manuscripts. We need to define the limits and patterns of pseudo-archaic spellings in a 16th century context. Liam Bernach has rightly pointed out that this grotesque spelling style is an attempt at pseudo-archaizing the texts. Of course, the individuals responsible must have been aware that they were pressing older spelling conventions to extremes unsupported by older manuscripts and using some writing practices not found in ancient books. We should ask why the scribes 
of 23 and 10 and other 16th century manuscripts would wish to recast the spelling of these texts in this manner. Linguistically, it would have been perfectly obvious to them that they were old. The idea of restoring the orthography of an or text would have been entirely foreign to them. And in any event, they were clearly not attempting to do that. Contemporary early modern spellings occur cheek by jowl with older spellings and entirely synthetic pseudo-archaic spellings. The history of Irish spelling has yet to be written, but when it is, the 16th century would be one of its most interesting chapters. As I noticed earlier, we have two stories to tell. One, the story of the triumph of a more phonetic, more progressive system. The other, the story of a backward-looking, deliberately obscure, often obviously non-phonetic system. It is worth noting, mutatis mutandis, that both sides of this orthographical coin are represented elsewhere in Europe in the 16th century. In England, we see early experiments with sound spelling, representing English as actually spoken, while at the same time, etymological spellings are being preferred by some writers, and a somewhat similar development, there are even efforts to purge English of inkhorn terms and harken back to Anglo-Saxon. In France, some writers are advocating a more phonetic spelling system for French, while others prefer to cultivate an artificial, etymological, highly Latinate style. We cannot press these comparisons too far, but there are similarities. And the 16th century was, for various reasons, a century of experimentation in spelling throughout Western Europe. One of these reasons was increased literacy. I emphasized earlier that the evil Chonera and their ilk did not engage in the study of early modern Irish literature for their own enjoyment, though many of them may have enjoyed it. They mediated it to the patrons who supported them financially and upheld their social status. We cannot hope to generate hard facts and figures about literacy in Ireland in this period, but from the early 16th century, the annals do note for the first time the deaths of several individuals who could read and were neither members of the clergy nor of hereditary learned families, members of a class who were once the passive audience for Irish literature, but were now able to consume it more directly. In 1527, for example, the same year as Gilleria Vachoclera died, one of the scribes of Harley in 5280, whom we met earlier, in the same year as he died, we find the literacy in Latin and Irish of the deceased Thomas Maugier being celebrated, a layman. In poetry, number 21, by the mid to late 16th century at any rate, we encounter praise of the intellectual accomplishments of patrons for the first time. We are told that they can read difficult manuscripts and at speed, that they correctly expand manuscript contractions that they have studied texts like Tegus Cormac in manuscripts. These literate lay people may well have been exceptional, but the learned orders in Ireland were notoriously anxious to protect their privileges. In that context, the desire of late 15th and 16th century learned families to make literature more obscure through manipulating the spelling and introducing difficult words makes sense. It may have been an attempt to safeguard exclusive rights to their stock and trade, or perhaps it might even have been motivated by a desire to please these more literate patrons, to impress them with still more esoteric and obscure ancient literature. The obscuring of legal texts with this spelling system is also explicable in that context. The lay lord had a role to play in legal procedure, including in judicial decisions concerning his underlings, a role which incidentally might even have expanded in the 16th century. Contemporary bardic poets frequently praise patrons of this period for being just judges. And so the legal scholar, as well as the custodian of Shanachas, might have felt he had some reason to worry about professional obsolescence. 
and may have hoped to protect his profession and his family's vocation with uncouth cacography. There is an exciting story to tell here. Of course, uh, it may not be enough to whet the appetite of those for whom 23 and 10 is, I think probably wrongly, a reliquary of genuine archaic spellings. But in this manuscript, we have a fine collection of Irish literature, preserved and molded by a learned class who were studying earlier manuscripts, experimenting with languages, and adapting to survive in a changing world. 23 and 10 has its place in an interesting chapter of the history of Irish spelling, but this chapter is set in the Renaissance, not the 7th century. Thank you.